Well, good morning, Four Corners. Praise God for another opportunity to come and stand on every promise of His Word. You know, as, I was, as we were singing that song just a moment ago, I was thinking a little bit about how God has so frequently, and you can probably bear witness to this in your own life, I'm sure, how you have experienced those moments of kind of darkness or dryness in your spiritual life. Those times maybe when you just feel kind of distant from the Lord and when things are just difficult and frustrating. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but in those moments frequently of sort of those dry spells, it's, it's amazing how God will just give us, uh, maybe through a, a, a time of devotion or a time where we speak with a friend, a Christian friend, or we go to group or we come to church, whatever it is, that God will give us just a little morsel of his word. And, and it's as though in those moments, those little, just the littlest morsel of his word just breaks into the dryness and the darkness and just infuses us with life. That is the effect that God's promises have on the Christian because they're an anchor for us. They're our hope. Our hope is in the truthfulness of the gospel we proclaim, of the gospel that we've hoped in, that we've trusted in. And so we do stand on every promise of his word. I hope that we will do that as a church and that each of us will do that individually. This morning, we come to one of the most important and tragic events in all of the Bible, in all of human history. This is the fall of humanity into sin. So if you will, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 3. Theologically, this event, what we read here in Genesis 3, is called the fall. And so we understand this to be a pivotal moment in biblical theology, in the, in the narrative, the meta-narrative, the, the, the large narrative that carries us from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. This is, this is a key event, and all of the Bible will, will flow out of what we get here in Genesis 3. Just to let everyone know, if this is your first time visiting Four Corners, we are in a series on the book of Genesis, presumably a long series, uh, but hopefully not inordinately long. Uh, but we will be in Genesis for some time. So we're now in chapter 3. And it is sobering to consider that every sin, every death, ultimately stems from what we read in this opening chapter in the Bible. Every sin you've ever committed can be traced back here. Every funeral you've ever attended and the death which you yourself experience in your own body even now, awaiting that which is truly death, physically, when each of us will, will perish from the face of the earth, all of it can be traced back to what we find here in Genesis 3. In Genesis 2, we encountered the biblical foundation for human dignity. We saw that at the end of chapter 1, and then throughout chapter 2, we have the biblical foundation for human dignity. And we also saw the biblical foundation for marriage. And as we've said many times, this opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 3, are, give us much foundational material. In fact, uh, foundational material for all of the major questions of life. We, we said uh, some time ago that the questions of who is God and who is man or who are human beings. These questions are, and, and all the questions associated with them begin here in these opening chapters of Genesis. But in Genesis 2, we get those foundation stones. And then now, in chapter 3, we get the foundation for human sinfulness. What's wrong with the world? Why are we sinners? Where does sin originate? What is the nature of human sin? Why do people die? In fact, why is there death, period? The creation itself groaning, as Paul says, 
in Romans 8. Why is there death in this world? Many people define these problems or answer the reason for these problems in ways that are contrary to what we find in the Bible. But what we find here gives us true answers to these real dilemmas of life, these real experiences of life. You know, we, we oftentimes think, well, that's why those people sin. That's why that thing that I read on the news this morning happened. But what we need to do is answer the question, why is this happening inside of me? You know, as, as we raise our children, this is one of the things that we have to do wisely. And that is, we teach our children what sin is and where it comes from and how it's out there and we see it and, and we, can, we can talk about it in general ways. But what we are trying ultimately to do as parents, as Christian parents, is get our children to understand that sin is in them. That it's in their little hearts. And thus they need a savior. That is the universal human Condition And these questions and many others, these dilemmas, these obvious experiences of life take us back to Genesis chapter 3. But as we descend into this pit of human sinfulness, this very deep and dark pit, which I think Trey alluded to there in his prayer, as we descend into this pit, I want to put before us and keep before us the Savior. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul relates Adam and Christ. He compares Adam and his work and Christ and his work. And I want you to listen closely to these two verses in Romans 5, which we read earlier, which Trey read earlier. Verse 18, listen to this. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One trespass, condemnation. One act of righteousness, justification. And then in verse 19, he says it again in a different way. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So here is what we need to see. As we descend, as we must, into this deep, dark pit of despair, this deep, dark pit of human sinfulness, as we do that, this is what we need to see. The unrighteousness and disobedience of the first humans should immediately point us to the righteousness and obedience of our Christ. Also, our own unrighteousness and disobedience should draw our minds to the righteousness and obedience of Christ. And what that means for us is as we come to this very important source text for the sin that we find, even now, even now, at this moment, in our own hearts, as we consider this source text for our own sin, sin not out there, but sin in here, a real thing in each of us, often blinded and deceived to our own sin. But as we consider this, there are two responses that we ought not to have. One of those would be to be mired down in human guilt. So there's a way of just sort of wallowing in, in the mud of it all and just being hammered down with this guilt with nowhere to go. That's one response as we consider our sinfulness. Another response that we want to avoid is being hopeful in human effort. The Bible calls us to much effort. Make every effort, Peter will say. Paul will say it many times. Strive like a soldier, like a farmer. Work, work, strive. Not undermining that. But what I am undermining is the way that we in our hearts begin to hope in our human efforts. When we see our sin, the first thing we do is we try harder. We throw ourselves at the problem. Try, 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 fail, try, try, fail. Self-reliance. 
And so I think we should consider, as we think about how sin of the first humans points us to Christ, our sin should point us to Christ, that, that neither should we be mired down in human guilt nor hopeful in human effort, but instead look to Christ as, as God's remedy for sinners. His righteousness, his obedience. You see, there is one man who is perfect, one human being who never sinned, not a single time. And if we are to flee from sin, we must run to Christ. We must see him as the perfect, obedient, righteous Savior that he is. And only in that will we be strengthened, not in guilt, not in self-reliance, but in trust in the Savior, only when we run to Christ. So, what are we going to cover today? Our text for today is Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5, those first five verses. Difficult at this point, determining which portions to preach together and how many different segments we have here, but what I want to do today is look at these first five verses, and I've entitled the sermon, The Deadly Dialogue, because that's what we have in these first five verses. When we come to verse six, we have the sin itself, the deed, the deadly deed, if you will. But what we have today is the deadly dialogue. That is the dialogue that leads to death. And so if you will, please stand with me. And let's read God's word together. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. This is God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask that he would strengthen us this morning to understand his word and strengthen us to wage war against this enemy. In Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we are amazed at your goodness towards us, that you, you brought us to this moment where we could sit under your sacred scriptures, we could, we could meditate upon your word. We know that the person who meditates upon your word is blessed like a tree planted by streams of water. Father, would you nourish us this morning? If there is any heart among us who has come and is just sort of passing this time, meditating upon some other thing, God, would you bring conviction and would you bring that heart and that mind to this moment? Father, would you bring us all to this moment that we would hear from you, the living God, Father, that you would be gracious to us in this place today, that you would be gracious to the children as they gather over on the side of the building, as they learn about you, Father, would you show them your holiness? Would you show them the sinful nature of their hearts, and would you show them their need for a Savior? And God, would you save them, we ask. Father, we pray for our children. We ask that you would save every single one of them, God. In Jesus' name, we ask you to do that, Father. We ask today as you are giving us your word that you would save us 
that you would bring to yourself for the first time those who are not believers and that you would sanctify us, that you would continue to do your saving work in those of us who are in Christ, to whom the righteousness of God has been imputed. Father, we thank you for this righteousness and obedience of Christ which towers over this garden scene of sin. Father, we thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And Father, we praise you that though we are sinners, you love us and you save us by the death of your own son. Father, we worship you today for these things. And we pray that we would worship you as a group this morning. That we would truly worship you in spirit and truth. And God, that we would not be carried away in our minds by other things. Protect us from this evil one whom we're going to look at. This morning, protect us from him, for we know that he is here even today. Father, would you give us a soberness about the truth of this, that the same devil who was there then is here now working. Father, may we be vigilant in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this Dialogue between the tempter and Eve, we notice that the topic of discussion is God's word. That's what, uh, that's, if this is a dialogue, it is a dialogue concerning the word of God. We know that from the first verse where it says, did God actually say? And then again in verse three, God said. This is a, a dialogue that is centered on God's Word And the reference is to what God said back in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. It's the only command. of We did have the command in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But this word command is explicitly given in chapter 2. And this is what we read there. From God to Adam. Chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it's this word from God to Adam and then transferred over to Eve, presumably by Adam. It is this word that is the topic of this discussion between the tempter and Eve. So four things to consider this morning as we think about this deadly dialogue centered on God's Word. Four things. First, God's word twisted. Second, God's word altered. Third, God's word contradicted. And finally, God's word maligned. <clears throat> so let's look at each of these as we go through these first five verses. So first, God's word twisted. Look with me at verse one. Look at what it says there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, there are a lot of things that we might might catch our eye as we go through this passage. But And there are many questions, many questions that maybe we have yet Uh, answered. But probably the most obvious question that we have is what in the world is going on with this talking snake that tempts Eve? I mean, that's probably the first most obvious question. We have two talking animals in all the Bible. We have this snake and a donkey, which, by the way, should tell us that this is, it, it, it's, these, are, these are some specific instances. This is not a normative thing. This is not normal. This is not something that happens throughout the Bible. But there are these two specific instances where we have an animal speaking. And here we are given a speaking, talking snake. So what are we to make of this? Well, later in the Bible... This serpent is clearly associated with Satan, the devil, the adversary. That's what those words mean. So Revelation 12, 9, he is called the great dragon, that ancient serpent 
who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's, that's a pretty comprehensive description of the devil. He's called the devil. He's called Satan, the great dragon, the ancient serpent. And what does he do? He deceives the whole world. And we know that he deceived the whole world in Adam, as in Adam all Die. He deceived Adam and Eve. He, well, he deceived Eve, and that led to Adam's fall. And then we know that, that Satan has been deceiving human beings ever since. He is the deceiver of the whole world. And in John chapter 8, verse 44, that's John 8, 44, Jesus describes the devil in this way. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, why do you think Jesus would call the devil a murderer? Well, here. God says, when the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And what is Satan tempting Eve to do? Eat of it. So in that sense, he is a, a murderer. And we see that he, he is the author as the tempter of all the murders that have happened from Cain killing Abel until the murders going on right now all over the world. And the murdering of our brothers in our own hearts. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he is a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, Jesus says, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's who this is, this ancient serpent. There are various places in the Bible that give us information on Satan's identity and fall, and a number of them are, are slightly uh, difficult, to interpret, there are some in the New Testament that may refer to uh, demonic, demonic beings leaving their, uh, these angelic beings leaving their proper place and, and mating with women. And there's different interpretations on that. We'll get to that when we come to Genesis 6. So there's various passages that, that are thrown around uh, to, to describe the fall or also to describe what's going on there in Genesis 6. But two passages in particular that have been brought forward to kind of capture what happened at Satan's fall are Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19, and Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. And what we have here in these passages are prophetic words to kings. And, and these, are, these are then understood as being sort of surpassing that specific message and really describing what is going on with Satan at the beginning of creation. From these passages, we gather that Satan was a beautiful, powerful, wise angel, a cherub, which is a type of angel. There are seraph, there are seraphim and cherubim and all other kinds of angels. And this is one particular kind, a cherub. And that this angel in pride exalted himself to the place of God. And so this is what we read in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. By the way, that was translated in the King James Version, Lucifer. And so that's where we get this word Lucifer is from the King James translation of day star. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So we see here this reference to an angelic being, so this, this day star. He's referred to as a cherub specifically in the Ezekiel passage. And it's said that he was there in Eden, there in uh, Ezekiel, and that this angel fell because he desired to exalt himself to the place of deity, to the place of divinity. One of God's most glorious angels thought that maybe he could just knock God off of his throne and be God himself. And that this came out, as the Ezekiel passage says, you can go and read that, this came out from within. It was within, in his own corrupted heart. He, he said in himself these things. 
We don't really know when the angels were created or when some of them, including Satan, fell from heaven. We're not given specific details on that. But we know that they did, that Satan is an enemy of human beings, and we see him here in the garden tempting Eve. So what do we do with the snake? We know that this snake is there referred to as the devil, as Satan, later on in the New Testament. But what do we do with this snake? Well, this creature, one of the beasts of the field, is, is crafty, cunning by nature. We're told that in the very first verse. And therefore, he becomes a fitting instrument and symbol of Satan. So we, we really don't know. There are a lot of questions that we have. And in fact, it's interesting to see all of the ways that the church fathers, in particular those early interpreters of the Bible, tried to, to sort of ask. There was a lot of speculation in patristic literature, the, the early literature of the, of the church. A lot of speculation and allegorical readings trying to figure out what do we make of this snake? What would it have looked like or appeared for this snake to speak? And these are just simply questions that we don't have answers for. But what we can know is that this crafty creature, this crafty animal, became a fitting instrument and symbol of Satan. So what we are looking at here is Satan tempting Eve. So what does this ancient serpent, this subtle deceiver, say to Eve? And I think there are several major things to observe. We would miss these if we're not careful. So here's what we need to see about Satan's question asking to Eve. First, he puts God's word forward as a subject of investigation and scrutiny. Do you notice that? That's the very first thing we have to observe, is that Satan begins to put God's word at the center of a chin-scratching discussion. That in and of itself, it would have been entirely new in the garden. God said, period. God rules. God reigns. God is king. We are his representatives. What we have Satan doing subtly at the very beginning, before we even look at the details, is he is beginning to position God's word in this zone of questionableness. It is now under the magnifying glass. It's under the microscope. God's word is under the microscope being scrutinized. One of the great truths of the Christian life of the world is that we must sit under God's word, not over it. One of the greatest minds, I think, in the history of Western civilization, St. Augustine, one of the church fathers, said that our thinking really is faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. One of the most fascinating things that, that you, you'll read if you read some of the, the works of Augustine, and I would encourage you to do that, the city of God is one of the massive ones that he's most known for. But if you read these things, you, you will see his confidence in the authority of Scripture, his confidence in the historical veracity of these things, accepting them as true and then trying to understand them. It's a presupposition, if you will, of the Christian life. God is truthful. The scriptures are true. Faith seeking understanding. But we see that tampered with here as God's word is subtly, very subtly. Remember, he's crafty, he's shrewd, he's cunning, very subtly undermined. It's a building, he's building it. Second, he casts doubt on the clarity. Do you see that? He casts doubt on the clarity of God's word by beginning his question with the words, did God actually say? In other words, I mean, can we, what's he even talking about? I mean, how, can we even get to a right interpretation? This is probably one of the most, and I mentioned this recently, it's probably one of the most, uh, the most prevalent critiques of the Bible, you'll hear among unbelievers is they will say, well, that's your interpretation, that's their interpretation, and they interpret it that way, and you interpret it this way, and so how can you really know? That's satanic. That's satanic because what it's doing is it is trying to, to get the focus off of one's own heart and put that on, on God's word as being unclear. In fact, really, God's muddled in his thinking. God is a confusing kind of God. 
He doesn't give us clarity, precision. He doesn't give us something that we can be sure about or certain about, that we can really stand firmly upon. Instead, he gives us muddled madness, really, something that we may or may not be able to discern. We see this a lot in biblical scholarship. And you can see it in various commentaries and hear it from various professor, professorial types and various books that you can get, you can read of this way of thinking. It's muddled, it's stripped of its clarity. God's word being portrayed as confusing and unsure. And I think these are the words really that can be heard in the ears of every sinner. Did God actually say? I mean, isn't that what the devil says to all of us in that hour of sin, in that moment of temptation, did God really say dot, dot, dot? And then, of course, the human heart, as it is, begins to justify whatever it is that he or she wants to do. As we know that human sin is, is based on the desires of the heart. The devil doesn't sin for us. We sin for ourselves, and we will give an account to God for our own sin. Not the devil. The devil's going to be judged for it all. But we will give an account to God for our own sin. Every time we hear these words, did God actually say? And we begin to cast God's word as confusing and therefore doubtful in our own minds. So let me ask you this question. How is the devil doing that even now in your life? How? Is he saying to you, did God actually say? You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about as you were driving to church this morning, perhaps? Even now, last night, lying in your bed, everyone else is asleep. You're thinking, did God actually say? It's the same recycled, deceptive rubbish that happened at the very beginning of creation. So that's the second thing that happens. God's clarity is cast into, is put into question. And then thirdly, we see that Satan totally perverts or twists what God said in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. They can have everything but one tree. That's what God says. God says you can eat of every single tree in all of the garden, but one tree. You cannot eat from that one tree. And look at Satan's twisted quotation. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, this is incredible. One of the things that commentators point out is that as Satan is asking Eve this question, he's drawing her into further dialogue. It's really interesting because he has to, she's going to correct him as she does. She's going to correct this egregious error, but he's drawing her in to this temptation further and further. This subtly moves Eve's mind away from the provision and permission that God gave towards an exaggerated view of God's prohibition. Notice that. She knows enough to be able to respond, no, 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 you have it all wrong, serpent. You have it all wrong. God did not say you can't eat of any, and then he, she corrects him, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But what we see here is with this very question, Satan is drawing Eve's mind away from the provision that God gave all of these trees and the permission that they could eat and enjoy and receive pleasure from all of these trees. He's drawing her mind away from that to consider an exaggerated version of God's prohibition. And what this really does is it undermines God's goodness. Already, Eve's understanding of God is being put into question. Is he really good? Does he really desire to give us good things? Does he really desire to lavish us with gifts? And one of the things I think this tells us is that godliness grows out of gift and gratitude. Think about that. We see that all throughout the Bible. That, that our godliness is always motivated by God's goodness. And you've seen this in your own life as a Christian. When God is, is appearing in your mind as hallowed in his goodness, 
When God appears to you as good and kind and giving and loving, you embrace him and you hate sin. Oh no, I can't do that. My father, he's so good. He just loves me so well. But it's in those moments of sin where God's goodness begins to fade. We begin to see him not as a loving Abba, not as a good God who gives kindly and lavishly, but we begin to see him as a distant God who may or may not be interested in our good. So we see here this ancient serpent perverting this word of God, making Eve to question God's goodness. And finally, as we've already observed, Lord God is changed to God. When Satan speaks to Eve, he changes Lord God. He changes that, which has carried us all the way through chapter two. He changes that to simply God. And what that means is, as God's covenant name is stripped, as God's covenant name is omitted from all of this, God as loving father is drifting from the mind of Eve. Now this is incredible when you think about this. This is one question, one question from the tempter and it is doing all of this. Think about it. It is putting God's word in question. It is questioning the clarity of God's word. It is putting into question God's goodness and in the manner of the question, it has now taken Eve and separated her from an understanding of God's love. One single question. So we see this crafty deceiver perverting and twisting the word of God. But that brings us to our second point here, and that is God's word altered. Let's look at Eve's response. Look at verses two and three. Eve's response. Verses two and three. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That's right, Eve. Right? That's the first thing we think when we read this because on the surface, on the surface, this seems like a a faithful and straightforward rendition of what God had communicated to Adam. Right? Right? I mean, we read this and we say, yes, so far, Eve, you're doing well. So far, you have put God's word up there and you've corrected that devil. You've let him know his error. But when we look a little closer at Eve's response, we notice some significant alterations. That's why I say up here, God's word is twisted by Satan so as to call God's goodness into question. And now we see that God's word is altered by Eve's Response. Where do we see this alteration of God's word? Well, first, where God said, and you have to look closely at these in order to see this, where God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Remember those words of God? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Eve says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. And here's what's interesting. There's two words as we, inter- as we translate this into English, two words that are omitted in Eve's quotation of God's word. Surely and every, both of these are omitted. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You may surely eat of every tree. Both of these words are omitted. And what has this done in Eve's alteration? What has this done? It shrinks God's goodness and his gifts. No longer in Eve's mind at this point does God surely give all. He just gives the trees the fruit. It's stripped. This omission is significant because it tells us something about how Satan is beginning to get into Eve's heart and it tells us what is happening in Eve's heart. So that's the first thing. We see the omission of surely in every second. She adds to the command. By saying, neither shall you touch it. Now, on face value, this seems quite pious, right? I mean, don't eat from the tree. Don't even look at it. Don't even look at it. It sounds pious. She's, she's not going to eat from it, but she's also, she's, she's added this, I'm not even going to touch it. But this is an addition to what God 
had said. And here's what it tells us. The prohibition is growing stronger and stronger. You have to see this. God's permission and provision are shrinking while God's prohibition is growing. That is so significant for how Eve is viewing God. The provision that God gave, the permission he gave to eat of every tree of the garden was lavish. One tree they can't have. This has been entirely in just these few verses. This has been entirely inverted. Now what we have is a God who is very restrictive. In fact, a God who is quite strict and severe, but not a God who is all that lavishing in his good gifts. And third, where God says you shall surely die, notice this, God says in Genesis 2 to Adam, you shall surely die. Eve merely says, lest you die. In other words, the penalty or consequence has already become a bit shaky in her mind. So let's put all this together. God, his prohibition, massive now. It's a big deal. God is seen as strict. His goodness, quite small, kind of base. And on top of that, we see here a general shakiness as to whether or not there will even be a consequence for disobeying him. And to all of this is added the fact that she follows the serpent in omitting the covenant name of God. See, you would expect for Satan not to mention the Lord God. You would expect for Satan not to call God Lord. But Eve should have. Eve should have referred to him as the Lord God all the way through chapter 2. We are given that name for God as he intimately forms man from the dust and as he lovingly and intimately takes from man's side to make Eve and then he brings Eve to her husband and her husband rejoices and they're both naked and unashamed together, a perfect love relationship. The Lord God did this. Now, it's stripped. She has followed Satan in how she refers to God. There are a few key things that I think we can learn from this. First, Eve should not have given the serpent a hearing. As soon as this serpent began to put God's word under scrutiny, but at least, at least the minute that this serpent misquoted God, twisted God's word, a red flag should have gone up. No, no, she should have said. But that's not what she said. She continued to stick around. Listen, have a little dialogue with the devil. And so here's the question I think that we have to consider. Why do we continue to give Satan a listening ear when he begins to sow seeds of doubt in our minds about the Lord's word. Why do we do that? In that first instance of temptation, this is one of the things that a number of medieval theologians talked about. One, Thomas Akempis, who wrote The Imitation of Christ, would often refer to, he was a, a monk, I believe in the late 13, early 1400s. He, he wrote about how at the first moment of temptation, we must flee. Because it's when we begin to walk a little ways with the devil is when we begin to fall. When he begins to get those crafty fingers into our hearts, it's, it's done. But at the onset, at the very beginning, the person who will fight the devil in Christ will be the person who says no at the very beginning. Not engaging in some extended dialogue with Satan. Another thing we should see is that the tendency to change the word in ways that prepare us for disobeying it prevails among all people. We have a tendency before we disobey the word to subtly begin to change the word in our hearts, preparing ourselves to disobey. We do that. That's incredible. It's not just outright disobedience. What we're doing in our own hearts is we're tweaking a little bit. We're tweaking the word so as to justify our own sin when we finally do it. It's already beginning, as Jesus says, 
in the heart. And one of the things we see is that despite these alterations, Eve knew what God had communicated. She knew the command. She knew the consequence. And all that tells us that Eve is not left in the dark. She is without excuse for her sin. Thirdly, we come to our third point this morning, and that is God's word contradicted. Look at verse 4. God's word contradicted. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It is fascinating when we consider that Satan really says very little to Eve in this narrative. I mean, he doesn't have to give her a long speech. That's not what we see. We don't see an extended back and forth conversation between Satan and Eve. He says very little to her. But his words are like laser beams. They go right to the issue in her heart. His words are powerfully deceptive and penetrating to the heart. And I want to say this to all of us. This is how cunning and crafty Satan is in your life even right now. Even now. Think about it. In what ways, right now, is Satan subtly undermining your walk with Christ? In what ways, even right now, is Satan very subtly, with minimal words, so to speak, beginning to move you away from God's goodness, beginning to move you away from obedience to God's word? He's doing that among all of us, all the time. So now that the clarity of God's word and the goodness of God are subtly in question, he is ready to offer an explicit, in-your-face contradiction of it. See, Satan was subtle at first, but now he slams her with a contradiction of God's word. This is very in-your-face. You will not surely die. God is a liar, is what he says. He strikes hard, much like a serpent, fast. In her face right now, God is a liar, he says. You cannot trust him. The father of lies here calls God a liar. That's the irony of it all. He's saying it is simply not true. God is not telling you the truth. And one of the important things that we need to see here is what exactly is Satan challenging about God's word. See, we need to get the general point. Catch this, catch this. We need to get the general point that Satan is calling God a liar. But specifically, what is Satan calling God a liar on? What exactly is he challenging? And it is this, God's judgment. That is specifically what he contradicts, what he puts in question. And this is very instructive for us it is the work of Satan, hear this, it is the work of Satan to deceive us into thinking that there is no divine judgment, no wrath, no hell, no hatred of sin. And I would say this for all churches, all Christian authors, all speakers, where hell is minimized, Satan is at work. We see it here, where, where judgment God's wrath against sinners for their rebellion is made little of. Satan is already much at work. Already much at work as we see him here in the garden. What's interesting too is that he's been at work. So if one is minimizing, catch this, I'm not just saying where hell is minimized, Satan is at work. I'm saying if we follow this, where hell is minimized and judgment challenged, he's been at work already for quite a while. He's already been doing much subtle work, and now he is doing an in-your-face kind of work. So what do we do? What do we make of this in our own individual lives? Well, let me, let me say it this way, where sin is trivialized, where bad habits are catered to, where pet sins are perpetuated, where an attitude of it's okay, God will forgive me. In other words, a cheap grace, a cheap, 
non-biblical understanding of God's grace in Christ, where we have this reigning, Satan is very much at work. Very much at work in the theologies that support this. Very much at work in churches that preach this way or teach this way or disciple this way. Very much at work in individual Christian lives who do this daily. So what sins are you trivializing? What pet sins are you just allowing to be perpetuated because it's really no big deal? Satan is good at keeping those around until they destroy your life. And he will do that. But he doesn't have to rush. He's got time. He'll take his time. Maybe decades. Maybe you won't see it. People been in the news recently. 60s, 70s, 80s. Being accused of things they did throughout their lives. Catching up with them. Life crumbling. Families destroyed. All because they petted that sin when they were in their 30s or 40s or 50s. He will come. But now he works subtly. So what is Satan's message to Eve here? Summing it up, God is a liar and there are no consequences for disobedience. He's got her. And that's exactly when you begin to feel that, those things in your own heart. God is a liar and there are no consequences for disobedience. This is the lies of Satan. But it gets worse. Let's go to our final point. God's word maligned. Look at verse 5. God's word maligned. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Wow. This is incredible. Do you see there are really three layers to Satan here? First, there is the layer of subtlety. Then there is the the layer of overt contradiction. And then God is just thrown down into the dirt. It's trampled upon by the devil. In fact, he's evil, Satan is saying. He's evil, this God who puts you here in this garden. We now see Satan attacking the motives behind God's word. In other words, where does the command of God come from? And here's the blasphemous charge of Satan. He says it comes from a jealous God who is holding you back. This is the God who made everything on the six days and said it is good. It is good. It is good. He made man in his own image. Let us make man, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit deliberating. Let us make man in our own image. Bless them. Gave them everything. Intimately breathed into man the breath of life. All of this. Very good. God will say at the end of creation. And now Satan comes along and says, not only is God not good, but he does not seek your good, Eve. He does not seek your good. He is a jealous God. In fact, Eve, God is worried you might compete for his spot. So see, he's holding back from you. He's holding something back from you. That would be great for you, really. It'd be great. You could get this thing. Oh, you would, you, would, you would find your destiny. You would discover all that is good and right in the world. And notice how Satan portrays himself, that evil liar. Here he is portrayed as one who is trying to help Adam and Eve reach their full potential. That's, that's how he presents himself. I'm really in your corner, Eve. I, I, I really just want the best for you. I want you to find the fullness of life. I want you to have self-fulfillment. This is the God of our culture, and it seeps into every one of our homes. Self-fulfillment, enjoyment of life. I'll give you that. I'm in your corner. I'll help you reach your full potential. Obedience to God's word, that whole business about that being The beginning of all knowledge and wisdom? What? No. Put yourself at the center and trust me, the devil says, and I'll give you all that you could ever imagine. This is precisely what he says to Jesus when he is tempted in the wilderness. He is portrayed as one who is trying to help Adam and Eve reach their full potential. God's good is not really all that good, he's saying, but I'll help you achieve your ultimate good. 
And God is here portrayed, so Satan is portrayed as the, the great giver of wisdom, the one who can help them reach their potential. And God is here portrayed as a mean-spirited and jealous tyrant. This is incredible. Who doesn't really care about his creatures at all. Everything we've read in Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that this is a lie. This is as far from the truth as you could possibly be. And here's the thing that you know, Christian. You know this, Christian. Everything God has done in your life tells you that this is a lie. If you just for a moment begin to think about all the ways that God has blessed you, that God has, has given you good things, you will remember that he is, in fact, a great God and Satan is a liar. And Eve should have thought of all of this, but she did not. And everything God has done for us in, in Christ and everything he has done in our lives should tell us that these accusations against God are nothing but lies. How many of us this morning are hearing those words, God is not good? You're suffering with something? Life's hard? God's not good? Are you hearing that? Are you thinking that? That's Satan. And God is portrayed in this way by the great murderer and liar from the beginning. And the minute we get into the Bible, we're reminded of who it is this liar is, what his nature is and what his tactics are. And we'll talk more about the nature of temptation next week, but now I want to draw you back to Christ. I want you to see this as we finish up this morning. I want to draw your mind back to Christ. When Christ was tempted to doubt God's word, he declared, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when Christ was tempted to engage in an extended dialogue with the devil, what did our Lord Jesus say to him, be gone, Satan, be gone. So maybe that's what some of us need to say this morning. Just frankly, we entertain his temptations for too long. We bear with them for too long. Be gone, Satan. To stand on the promises of Christ, the one whose foot rests on Satan's head. He's crushed the head of the serpent already. It's already happened at the cross. And one day he will crush Satan's head eternally and for good. There will be no more devil. There will be no more temptation to sin. That's Satan's end and he knows it. And so we say, in Christ's strength and in his might, be gone Satan now. That is... The message of the Christian. Christ is our champion. And in him, we have overcome the enemy. In him, we can overcome Satan's craftiness every single day. The Christian has overcome Satan once for all in a big way. But every single day, hour by hour by hour, in Christ's strength, in our champion's strength, we can overcome Satan every single day in all the little ways that he subtly works to undermine our spiritual lives, undermine our families, and undermine our church. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have a champion in Christ. Father, we praise you that Christ has overcome the devil, that he is the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, who crushed him at the cross, that glorious, naked, dying Savior, in all humiliation, mocked and laughed at, was a great captain and conqueror on the cross as he suffered grievously. Father, we praise you that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we pray that you would assure us 
of our obedient and righteous standing in him, clothed in him with his righteousness. And and even more, Father, in that standing, we pray that you would equip us every day to fight in his strength, in the power of his might against the temptations that we face. God, would we not grow lazy but vigilant in the Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen.